Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I am Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and I'll be your host for season three. For this season, we're going to return to the relationship between Peter Block, count to five, one, two, three, four, five, Walter Brueggemann, well done. You're a quick study, you made me count to ten. And John McKnight. I've turned up the song. Technology. <laughs> what would they do in community before hearing aids? Yeah, right. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Their friendship has become a model for how the common good shows up in local, tangible, and relational ways. If this is your first time with us, we suggest you start with season one, but you can also check out the show notes for background and bios if you want to jump right in. Each episode of this five episode season will be a conversation between these three friends. The conversation takes place at Walter's house in Michigan, sitting around the table, and you'll find that these men find it nearly impossible not to punctuate their statements by pounding their fists on the table. We start the first episode with Peter discussing the idea of Jubilee. Jubilee, to me, is just a conversation about land, debt, and money. The church has a lot of money. Land. And the church I know with $84 million endowment, the one goal is to make sure that number stays at 84 or higher for the next five generations. So the church and its commitment to live out the body and the thing of Christ, you know, it's kind of a strange disconnect. Feeding 5,000 people a month is a substitute for investing, believing that the people we're serving are not going to make the most productive use of the land. They take a poor neighborhood and they let it run down by design. They send police in to give citations, so I think it's dangerous. Hmm. And then they buy up the cheap land and bring in the productivity of the plantation. It's called displacement. And the church is silent on that. Yep. The church is, yep. and it's not the church, it's the faith community. And it's stunning to me and interesting to me. <laughs> and we all participate in it by thinking uh, we have a, we call it progress. You know, my, my intent is not to hold the churches accountable. But you, it should be. Well, you've tried that for a long time. <laughs> yep, yep. How's that going? <laughs> It's slow work. <laughs> you don't take it personally, do you? No. I don't. Okay, good. I don't. But Walter's been, you've been such a voice. And I, and I was thinking, Exodus, you, I don't know when you first focused on that, but it seems to me you stayed with that yeah. as a defining, <laughs> totalizing. Why has that been so compelling to you? Why is that story? Well, it is, uh, it is uh, the defining story of Judaism, and it's easy to argue that uh, Jesus re-performed the Exodus mm. by uh, emancipating all those people that he dealt with. So it, it insists, the narrative insists on being central. But uh, beyond that, I suppose it was my uh, reading of the liberation theologians of Central America, mm -hmm. who uh, alerted me uh, to what the Bible was really about. I think I had, I think I had inclinations before that, 
but I didn't have the tools uh, to do that. And, I, and how would you say what the Bible is really about? Uh, it's about um, God's will for the formation of neighborhoods uh, in which everyone participates in the abundant gifts of God for the sake of peace and justice, something like that. Oh, my. The Torah of the Old Testament, the Jewish Torah, is um, filled with tension. On the one hand are the purity codes, and the purity codes are the voice of the status quo to keep power in place mm. because none of the impure people are allowed a voice. Uh. And on the other hand, the emancipatory impulse of the book of Exodus. So it's basically in, in the Old Testament, it's the book of Leviticus, which is purity codes, and the book of Deuteronomy, which is essentially emancipatory justice. Mm. Now, those, the, 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 the two pieces of literature are not clean about that. But the, but, the, but the big tilt is in that way. And so I have come to think that the, that the adjudication of the Bible is uh, the adjudication between these two traditions. Uh, and the Christian tradition, um, Jesus came down decisively on the side of Deuteronomy. You just look at the quotes and all that, not Leviticus. But... The, the uh, purity codes keep resurfacing in the life of the church. For example, around the question about who can be ordained. So women couldn't be ordained and gays can't be ordained. Anybody who is not a, not a part of the power structure is impure and is not qualified to do this work. So you can just see it laid out. I think the modern language for impure is poor. Uh, that's right. You could connect them. If you oh, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And to be poor it means that you're broken. Yep. And it's the Leviticus obligates me to fix you, and that's the treachery of charity. Yep. It yep. begins with a basis. Yep. And uh, and the and the amazing thing in the Jesus story. Uh, is uh, even before Prince Princess Diana did it, Jesus deliberately violates all the purity codes. Wow! Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, he touches lepers and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Those bad things on the Sabbath. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Well, what, what's so what's so puzzling and so obvious is how could a community that was centered on the emancipation of the book of Exodus yeah. generate purity codes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you just rephrase that. How could a church gathered around the Easter story hmm. become so exclusionary? Yeah. <laughs> In this country, especially. We came here first, and uh, Columbus declared that the impure Native Americans yep. We're lucky to be discovered. That's right. And, that's right. That's right. And there's no difference between that moment and telling blacks you need more education. Yep. Yeah. Social service program. They're all aimed at people that are uh, broken, and we're going to fix them as yep. if we're not broken. Also, see, I, I could live with this 
if I knew that the people owning the land acknowledge that we are broken also. Yeah. We are broken because our children are addicts. Most of the addiction is high performing. <laughs> yeah. Most of the youth suicide, yeah. high performing. Yeah. And that's why it strikes me with Jubilee that we have to reclaim the land as a common property. Say, well, so what's the essence? Where do you put your energy? Because there's too much to do. And I'm out of time. I'm going to say, well, if we don't own the land, we don't have a future. That's right. Give me a PhD. Have your PhD. Yep. All right. Make a good living. Work for Procter and Gamble. Work for Procter. God bless you. <laughs> but if the people who are vulnerable, we don't create, a, don't take back the land and tell Mr. Locke that he was wrong. Yep. That's right. That if the land is unutilized, which is why the planet, this is where poverty and the planet come together. Yep. Because the belief system from the 1800s is if the land is not fully utilized, it's a sin against God, like God got into property. He ran a real estate business. Yep. And he said, utilize my land. Yeah. And if you're only growing plants on it, build a building. Yep. And if it's a two-story yep. building, how high can you go? Yep. And I just feel that's the, there's something in that that I can't stop thinking about. That's why the exodus, departure to what? Part of it is to say, well, it's got to be a communal land, and we're terrified of any word that starts with seal, collective, communal, mm -hmm. communist, communist. That's right. If I go and attack the land and say it's mine, I will defend it against all odds. That's whiteness translated into social good. The whiteness to me is the belief that the land has to be developed and the economy has yep. to put That's you right. on business. Yeah. That's right. So I don't, I don't anticipate violence. It's taken us anywhere because most revolutions, they just are pissed off at who the dictator is. There's, there's a difference between land and a place. And I was thinking the other day, uh, talking together about uh, what's the difference? What, what makes a place that is a community, right, on the land, right? How, how do we take land out of the, the economics you're talking about and redefine what it's about? And uh, I, so I was thinking, what, would a, what is a place uh, about? It's, it's a place where uh, possibilities emerge. We could be thinking about, uh, if we got through the wilderness, what would this place be like? Right. And finally, I, there's a lot of say in my mind that the place tells you what there is to do and how it can be done. Yep. Right? Yep. And as a result of that, you will develop a culture that facilitates that doing. Right. And a story always goes to that captures and instructs right. about this place. Yep. Now, I think there must be a lot in the Old Testament that <laughs> speaks of this place. 
You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. As the conversation moves to place, it's easy to focus on what's wrong in our world. This poem by Maggie Smith, while recognizing this reality, invites us to discover our agency in creating beauty. It's called Good Bones. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short and the world's at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be really beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. Now, back to Peter. As a segue, I think, when you take the language of the land, and lay on it the idea of a place. Uh-huh. You brought the feminine. A place yeah. is a softer tone. In the Old Testament, clearest articulation of this is the, the story of Naboth's vineyard, uh-huh. in which Naboth is this farmer, and he lives on his inheritance, which is a feminine verb, nachla. Mm-hmm. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel want his property. He offers him a different property, and Naboth says, I can't, this is my place, this is my inheritance. So they frame him and execute him, uh, and uh, the crown gets the property. So Uh Ahab and Jezebel think that his farm is a tradable commodity. Uh It's not a place. Yeah, <laughs> it's so that's wonderful. Two extrapolations. I just been reading about this. Uh-huh. In 1865, Charles Sumner, the great mm-hmm. abolitionist, yeah. made a speech in the Senate uh, entitled "Naboth's Vineyard," uh, and it was about U.S. policy in Central America. And in 1928, Sumner Wells, who was in the State Department, wrote a book called Naboth's Vineyard, which again was about Central American U.S. policy. So this narrative has had an incredible uh, continuing life of these two contrasting ways of of viewing the same... uh, Deciding what is the value of a property. That's right. That's exactly right. And so in Over the Rhine, there's a basketball court sitting next to a school. And the uh, Mount Auburn Neighborhood Council said, we need that to create enough contiguous land to, to, fill, to create 14 half a million dollar homes. And what we'll do for you is we'll build you a basketball court over here that's much nicer than the one you left behind. You need to stand on that property and read the narrative in a loud voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> only, only if you come in. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I'm never quite sure whose side I'm on. Yeah. But a, a place can be uh, enclosed. 
um, the, the uh, free market world has no enclosure, right? But when we say place, it is a, a space that has limits yep. in terms of people and in terms of the land and, and uh, what it can do. Yeah. And so the problem of place, in my mind, is the problem of the stranger. Because all of those things that could grow into a culture that reflects the place and what it has to offer and its resources and our relationships, or maybe building uh, tyranny, building exclusion, yeah. building our control, our way. Yeah. So. Build a wall. Uh, yeah, a good friend of mine, Judith uh, Snow, used to say, "We have to have a welcome at the edge." And so, as we as we think about this place, what is it that assures a welcome at the edge? That parochialism doesn't yeah. become death-giving rather than death-defying. Yeah. What's the thread of the stranger through the Old Testament? Uh, well, the Old Testament is pretty much on the side of the stranger. You know? <laughs> we translate alien or immigrant or gare, sojourner, all of that. I'm, I'm one of the, 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 the threat seen from the side of the purity laws is that they will contaminate the community. <laughs> they, will, they will lodge impurity among us. Right. How do you make sense of that? Is that inherent in human nature, sort of an accident of uh, diet? <laughs> I think it's an accident of ideology. The ideology is that we, in our chosenness... Yeah, you've never uh, been happy yeah, about yeah, the chosen. Yeah. That's right. That's you right. talk about my people, but go ahead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, but also white Americans are chosen. And uh, so we have to protect our chosenness and our purity. And so we make laws and build walls. And, and what's the fear underlying yeah. that? What's the concern? Why, why are we so vulnerable when we're so powerful? Yeah. I don't, th I, th I think that mentality doesn't perceive us as powerful. It perceives us mm. as being in jeopardy. So you can, you can trump up this fear of immigrants pr precisely in those parts of our country where there are no Ready. immigrants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it started in the eight, early 1800s in this country, yeah. when all of a sudden we decided that Italians, Eastern Europeans, <clears throat> were a threat. Yep. Eugenics was the science that justified right. it. Yep. And the guy who owned the Saturday Evening Post used that tool to say that we have scientific proof yep. of the inferiority of non-Nordic people. Yep, that's right. That's what Trump said, we need more people from Norway. Mm -hmm. You think that, I mean, I've asked you about 40 times the same question. <laughs> Why did the Jews wait 400 years. <laughs> I love that. And you said they couldn't imagine their freedom. Do you feel within the mm. Jews in that stability it was attractive and afraid of a stranger? Why are so many cultures frozen into not having that freedom? Was the fear of a stranger part of what kept them in, oh, in subjugation? I could believe that, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't imagine a stranger
that would be a credible generative neighbor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we imagine the stranger otherwise as being a, a, a destructive presence. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So even people in prison, even people that are choosing their containment, which is people in the suburbs, the whole suburban appeal was safety. That's right. Anybody in the suburbs, you say, why'd you come here? I, said, I want you safe. <laughs> you know, I get my children to get a good education. Right. Uh, even those were terrified that the other yep. would disrupt their safety. That's right. That's right. Because right. the, the other must be perceived as a threat. When uh, Saddam Hussein, you know, had been captured, his, he had two sons who had a ruthless reputation who fled and they didn't know where they were. And uh, they finally ran them down in the house of a small time merchant, right? And they killed them right there. And of course, they were very suspicious of the husband and wife who had taken these two in, terrible people. And uh, there's a wonderful interview with the wife. And he said, why were they here? And she says, well, my husband was at the market, like he is every day, and these two young men came and said they had no place to stay that night. And how could we refuse? <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the work of Walter, Peter, and John, as well as the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and produced by Joey Taylor, with music from Jeff Gorman. I think that's very powerful, just yeah. that sentence. But that's something to hold on to. I think it something is. I think it is. <laughs> yeah, all right, I like that. See you next week for episode two.